You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello. How you doing? I'm just doing fine. I hope you are. In the 1940s and 50s, Bell Telephone develops a new service, the car phone. Using Western Electric and Motorola, they began offering phones to important people in certain cities and along certain highways. Washington, of course, had this service. It's all based on VHF, the same technology that TV was running on at that time. It's a bit clunky. You had to have a transmitter and a power supply in your trunk, taking a lot of space. There was an antenna in the roof. And it was like one of them old black rotary phones with the handset, coily cable. You'd pick it up, flick on a switch, and get an operator to call your party. There weren't many subscribers, about 4,000 in the United States. But Lyndon Johnson, majority leader of the Senate, was one of them. He was the first legislator in Washington to have one. And so the story goes that one day when Everett Dirksen, the Republican minority leader, telephones him at his limo and says he's calling from his new car phone. He has one too. Can you hold on a minute, Ev? Johnson says. My other phone is ringing. Lyndon Johnson's stories, we could do a whole podcast of that. Someone could just do a cast out there. Lyndon Johnson's stories. And maybe someone will. He liked to wow people. What we call today shock and awe was standard LBJ stuff. When he ran for office, when he ran for Senate in 1948, he did something a bit shocking involving the new technology at the time as well. He rented a helicopter. Big deal, right? A helicopter. Everyone flies around in those. But in 1948, this is a new device. Not that many in operation in civilian use at all. Now that he's running for the Senate, he could travel all over the state of Texas, hover the copter over a town. And it's kind of like an extra bit of advertising, you know, before he even hops out, which he would to great acclaim because everyone in the, there would be crowds coming to these ballparks where maybe a car with a bullhorn would say, come see Senate candidate Lyndon Johnson. He could just reach people. Let's say he was flying to one of his events and he saw a group of construction workers, an oil rig, a couple of farmers in a field. He could hoover down and get close enough in the air to wave to them and say hello. In the cities of Texas, he landed in a big shopping center and then hop out. It was the attraction. It was actually a little dangerous. One of the models... uh, Crashed the day after it had taken OBJ. But nonetheless, he survived, went on to win the Senate, a very close and controversial election. And the Johnson City Windmill, as it was called, 
helped him to win. Johnson did more. Needing his help for his Senate campaign, he decided to court business leaders. He voted for Taft-Hartley anti-union legislation. It limited the power of unions. He criticized unions himself. That is something the labor movement, particularly George Meany of the AFL-CIO, would never forget. Although it may have helped him get to the Senate, it blemished his career thereafter. Lyndon Johnson is elected Senate minority leader after the Senate majority leader had been defeated in the sweep that Eisenhower would have over the country. Democrats would lose the Senate. Now the minority leader's job is open. LBJ had courted various senators, southern senators. He had the support of Sam Rayburn over the House Free Influential. He's made minority leader. By 54, Democrats take the Senate back, and now he's the majority leader of the Senate. He works with Eisenhower. They craft legislation. When you hear about the achievements of Eisenhower's administration, the highway bills, the education bills, you have to keep in mind that it's because there's a cooperative effort between moderate Republicans, moderate Democrats, LBJ working with Eisenhower at the White House all the time. You have to keep this in mind if we're ever going to discuss... Lyndon Johnson, and John F. Kennedy. Sir, how are you, Mr. President? I'm just doing fine. I hope you are. Oh, yes, I'm doing pretty good. How's my thighs now? Oh, it's fine. We're leaving for California tomorrow night. Lady Bird and I wanted to talk to you and tell you we just sure hope you could come to the inauguration and uh, if we could do anything to make arrangements uh, I know you have personal uh, friendship and admiration without agreeing on political policy, and I'm certainly never going to say anything that would imply that kind of a thing about the administration you had. I know that. Well, we, we, uh, we're we in different parties, but we're for the same country, and uh, we may have different approaches. I don't think many. I served under you eight years, and I didn't find it very uncomfortable. I didn't find that I was very incompatible, and I found myself down there on the front row voting for your recommendations a good many times when uh, Republican leaders were on the back row fighting them, and uh, I uh, I find myself pretty comfortable with you, and uh, I don't, I haven't ever found it necessary to, to say anything personal about you or anything about your program, and uh, Lyndon Johnson is the one who is the most powerful Democrat of the 1950s. Johnson was the young man in the Democratic Party. You get to 1960, and if you're looking at who is going to likely get the presidential nomination, I mean, the party had run Adelaide Stevenson, former governor of Illinois, twice. He's young, he's powerful, he has national cred, he's up there with Eisenhower. But something strange goes on, and this is a process that recently has been further illuminated with Robert Caro's latest book on Lyndon Johnson. There's delegates all over the country asking, you know, are you going to run for president? And he doesn't flick the switch. Kennedy, meanwhile, comes to the Los Angeles Convention in 1960 with more than enough delegates. By the time Lyndon Johnson jumps into the race, and he has to do it giving an excuse that he's been busy being majority leader. And oh, also, by the way, if you think I'm going to run for president to attack 
Eisenhower, you're mistaken. There's a little drama at the convention, but Kennedy beats him. LBJ's sad and bitter about it. So you'll often hear, so Lyndon Johnson wanted the presidency, but I think it's much more complicated than that because for someone who wanted the presidency so much, he really didn't run. Now, if you go with Robert Caro's thinking, it is that he was afraid of the failure. So if he ran, he was going to have to win, and he was afraid of losing that. And while Lyndon Johnson was a master of manipulating back rooms, of knowing how to get a senator's vote, running a national presidential campaign, raising all the money, getting all those delegates, was not something that he was as experienced with. He was afraid of the failure. That's Caro's take. But yet... Here's the thing. He keeps saying during 1959 to 1960, he's not running for president. He's not running for president. The top Democrat, but not running for president. There's a book that journalists put together featuring profiles of the likely presidential candidates in 1960. And it does not include Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson complains to these journalists. But this is crazy. I mean, think about today. There's all this talk about, well, perhaps Elizabeth Warren will. There's a lot of people that are are supporters and would like to see her run. She's made it adamantly clear that she's not running for president. And imagine if if then in an article listed a couple candidates for the Democratic nomination, you know, Hillary Clinton, Martin O'Malley, Joe Biden, just all these people and... Elizabeth Warren's not in it because she said she didn't want to run, and then she were to complain about that. And that's what happened with Lyndon Johnson. There's even a stranger episode that occurs. As we said, Lyndon Johnson is working with Eisenhower a lot. And Eisenhower's asked who he thinks will run for the Democratic nomination, you know, who he thinks will run for president in 1960. He really can't name anyone serious. Eisenhower has a meeting with Johnson after that. Can't get a word out of him. He just gets one-word replies. Every time Eisenhower says something, Johnson just says, yeah, no, something like that, mutters. Eisenhower knows something wrong. He writes a letter to him, sort of apologizing, Eisenhower to LBJ. Finally, LBJ writes something back to the effect of, I really, you know, wish I would have been on your mind as a candidate after we've worked together so much. So there's this strange combination of doesn't want to run for the thing directly, maybe wants it handed to him, at least wants the respect, and somehow wants to be magically out there in terms of the discussion about the 1960 race without having actually ran a race. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. 
an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Meanwhile, the Kennedy the people are taking delegates. One of the things that Kara does in his book is that in the West, they put Ted Kennedy in charge of getting the Western delegates. And he really reports that most of these guys who are in charge of the state Democratic parties in states, you know, Utah, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, etc., they're aligned to Lyndon Johnson. You know, he's from Texas. He's closer to the West. But it's easy pickings. And they're able to uh, pick them off uh, individually, and Johnson's not putting up any fight. So what's going on? Then you have a series of hours in the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles. Lyndon Johnson is on the seventh floor. Kennedy and his people are on the ninth floor. There are trips back and forth in the elevator. There are phone calls. There's a little disagreement about all the stuff that happens. There are different accounts. Actors have described it in ways that are contradictory with their actual actions. They've described it differently later. But we know this. Kennedy offers Johnson the spot on the vice presidential ticket. Visits him in his hotel suite. Says to him, would you be available for the vice presidency? And Lyndon Johnson says some form of, yes, I would. There's a couple stipulations, and one of the big stipulations, which is interesting and I went off to talk about, is that Sam Rayburn, Speaker of the House, objects to that, and Lyndon Johnson puts it in Kennedy's corner that he would have to overcome any objections that Rayburn has. I was asked this question on Quora, and you know, I'm on Quora.com. Is it possible that Lyndon Johnson manipulated his way into the vice presidency, assuming that Kennedy would die of health issues. And could this be an alternative to the Johnson had Kennedy assassinated conspiracy theory? I would say, look, there's no reason to substitute one bad theory for another bad theory. So I think the answer is no, but I'll go through it a bit. With the first caveat being that, gosh, if anyone was making a movie, you know, LBJ makes such a great suspect, doesn't he? I mean, he's miserable as vice president. He's a power-seeking individual. He's ruthless. That's what makes it all the more difficult. Uh, And we'll get into this later, but he's going to tell people that he researched and how many times a, a vice president succeeds after a president's death. You know, he makes it real easy. Uh, to think that. But I think I'll start at a different place. I think you really need to get into the discussion of how LBJ became vice president and understand all those facts before you think about anything else, especially this, like, did Lyndon Johnson manipulate his way into the vice presidency? So here's what I'd say about all these events in the Biltmore Hotel and Johnson's nomination for vice president in 1960. The first would be, this was John F. Kennedy's decision. 
not LBJ's. John F. Kennedy asked Lyndon Johnson to be his vice presidential running mate. He did so over the objections of his brother, some of his key aides, massive objections, as it would turn out, we'll talk more about it, from labor leaders. I mean, when I talk about objections, I mean, we're talking about people who actually want to hit people, to actually have a physical fight over the decision to nominate Johnson. The liberals in the party had triumphed in the convention. And when Kennedy offered Johnson the vice presidential ticket, liberals were enraged. It was like they had given up everything. I mean, the labor leaders are going to be extremely disappointed. The Michigan delegation, the District of Columbia delegation, both threatened that they'll vote for Kennedy, but they are not voting for Johnson for VP. There's talk of a fight on the floor, that this is the kind of thing that happens. Now, it's both sides. When Johnson gives an indication to Kennedy that, yes, he would consider the vice presidency, but provides a few stipulations, most important being you got to get Rayburn on board. If Rayburn's not on board, I'm not on board, that kind of thing. An Oklahoma senator who's a big kind of rough guy, he comes up to Johnson's suite and he threatens to shoot everyone. I mean, this is not exactly, he's not exactly joking. He says he's going to pull out his 38 and shoot everyone if they even think about taking this nomination from those liberals. So you have on both sides literally the type of violent opposition that actually gets close to violence. This uh, Senator Kerr is going to be escorted by Lyndon's aide, uh, Bobby Baker, into the bathroom of the hotel suite. And (laughs) he ends up in a little bit of an altercation. Finally calms down. I give him the reasons why this is going to be a good thing and it could work and, and all of that. And Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, but let's repeat. Kennedy wanted Lyndon Johnson to be his vice president. This is seen from his actions. Robert Kennedy was not a big fan of this idea. But I think both he and Robert Kennedy, at least John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, at least agreed on this. In theory, the strategy was right. You needed Lyndon Johnson as vice president to win the South. Kennedy was a northern liberal. 
senator from Massachusetts. Eisenhower had started making inroads. Eisenhower had won Texas. You needed Lyndon Johnson to win the South. They want to win the general election, not just get the Democratic nomination and then flame out. John F. Kennedy makes it clear to his aide, Kenneth O'Donnell, when Kenneth O'Donnell presents objections. First of all, they need Lyndon Johnson for the South. And second of all, Lyndon Johnson was majority leader. They don't want to anger him. They don't want to anger Sam Rayburn. They want to keep them placated. All right. They get into the presidency. Lyndon Johnson feels snubbed. He's majority leader. He's blocking everything the Kennedy administration wants to do. Not only that, the person in line to succeed Lyndon Johnson is Mike Mansfield. And he tells Kenny O'Donnell, did you ever think that if we put Lyndon Johnson in the vice presidency, we can work with Mike Mansfield, who will work with us better? And Kenneth O'Donnell says, you know, you're right. I hadn't thought of that. So John F. Kennedy goes down at LBJ's behest to Sam Rayburn's hotel suite and convinces him. Sam Rayburn says this. This has to be completely your decision coming from you. You have to be the one to sell it to your liberal and labor union allies. We're not going to put his name in nomination and have him defeated at the floor. All right. That's your job. You're going to give him a position, counsel, and you're going to, and, and basically says, you're going to make Lyndon happy. I will do all those things, is what Kennedy responds to Rick with. Now, Rayburn is against the idea of uh, Lyndon Johnson running for vice president, but during the hours at the Biltmore Hotel, he changes his mind, and I think it's for a couple of reasons. Rayburn's thinking is, exact, is a way to understand Lyndon Johnson's thinking during these moments, by the way. Sam Rayburn doesn't like Nixon. Didn't trust him in the House. This is a guy that was calling his members communists, that was beating some of his the House members that he liked. Sam Rayburn had been Speaker since the 40s. Didn't like Nixon. Doesn't like Nixon. Fears Nixon as a president in 1961 and what he's going to do. They could work with Eisenhower. They're scared of Nixon. Wants to beat him. Lyndon Johnson can help beat Nixon. So that's one of his motivating reasons. The other is that with Eisenhower in the White House, a Republican, Lyndon Johnson in the Senate, a Democrat, he's a powerful figure. With Kennedy in the White House, a Democrat, Lyndon Johnson's majority leader is merely going to be doing the bidding of the White House in most cases. And he's not going to be the head of the Democratic Party anymore, the key figure in the Democratic Party or anything like that. He's not going to be driving legislation anymore. It's going, that's going to be coming from the White House. Sure, they can be conflicts. Sure, he can interfere with things. Sure, he has a role. But he's not going to have the same role that he had in 1959. That is crucial to both Rayburn, a person who understands power, and Lyndon Johnson's thinking at the time as to why he would possibly accept this office of the vice presidency. Okay? Now, I've digressed a bit, but the main point is that when Kennedy goes down to reassure Sam Rayburn, when he reassures Kenneth O'Donnell, and later, and in all the communications he has with Rayburn and Lyndon Johnson, he wants Lyndon Johnson to be his vice president. This is Kennedy's choice, not Lyndon Johnson's to manipulate. Another point to make, Lyndon Johnson did not have a long period of time to make this decision about the vice presidency. It's a few hours between these rooms in the hotel. The vice presidency of 1960 was already not the vice presidency of old times, and everybody in the rooms knew it. After World War II, it had grown already by the time LBJ makes his decision. 
Truman gave Albin Barkley far more of a profile. He's on the National Security Committee. Nixon was also on the National Security Committee, high-profile vice president, going on trips, meeting with Khrushchev, having that famous kitchen debate directly with the Russian leader, running cabinet meetings during Eisenhower's stroke. So the vice presidency is something more than it was. Related to that, I think LBJ thinks in 1960 accepting this and leaving the majority leader position, that he can still retain power over the body that he had power over, the Senate. He assumes this. In fact, when he becomes vice president, he has a meeting with senators and says, look, I'm going to try to run things the way I used to from the vice president's office. And they absolutely rebel. This is unexpected. Linda Johnson is embarrassed by it and didn't expect it, didn't see it coming. Mike Mansfield says, no, I'm the majority leader now and I'm running things or I'm going to resign. Senators vote with him and not with Lyndon Johnson. So he's shut out of the Senate. But he doesn't think this in 1960 at the Biltmore Hotel when he's deciding to accept it. He doesn't think he's giving up control of the Senate. That's an important thing to consider. So there's benefits to the office of vice presidency beyond just becoming president someday. Texas law had been changed to include the famous LBJ rule. So this decision to run for vice president didn't have a huge loss for him at that point. Therefore, for all these reasons, I think it was not shocking that Lyndon Johnson says yes to running for vice president, though some of his personal friends were shocked. Senators were surprised he wanted to leave the body, but he had been a leader for six years. He was apt for a change. While Kennedy had health issues, some that are not even well-discussed, by most Americans even today, there wasn't a reason to suspect that one of the nation's youngest presidents would have died before 1968. Now, getting to those health issues, because it is part of the question, Kennedy had Addison's disease. It's a malfunction of the kidneys. It's extremely serious. A lot of people even today think that that aren't aware that Kennedy often used crushes. Got to bed early, woke up late, would read his briefing papers in bed, had special pools built into the White House because of the extreme back pain. But the health condition of John F. Kennedy as president or as a presidential candidate in 1960 was not that when he was a sickly looking congressman in the late 1940s because there had been a treatment developed. And the treatment is essentially the use of cortisone. And it was found that cortisone could help replace what the kidneys weren't producing. Kennedy would have had severe health issues or as, a, as an older person. But uh, to take that and extrapolate that, uh, that politicians operating in 1960 would think that Kennedy would die at any time before 1968, I think would have been ludicrous. He was a young, healthy man in all appearance. There's actually a leak during the 1960 convention about it, but Kennedy campaign denies it. Don't think it's credible at that time for anyone to think that, oh, well, if, uh, he'll be dead in, in four years or in, in eight years' time because of this health condition. I don't think that's a factor in Lyndon Johnson's decision. What complicates this, though, is that in Carroll's book, and according to a comment from Claire Booth Luce, uh, writing to the inauguration with Johnson, Claire Booth Luce says... That Johnson tells her, I researched it and one out of seven vice presidents become president. And apparently he did have his staff research that. 
I, I still, you know, we're talking about a guy that, that that was very intense and that looked at everything, every political possibility, and I wouldn't see it as the major reason for accepting the vice presidency. I see it as a side reason and one of many things that he, boxes that he checked. Hey, you know, among other things, uh, one out of seven get to be president. So I think too much has been put into that. So, no, I don't think any of those things, I don't, first of all, I don't think LBJ manipulated his way into the vice presidential nomination. I think that he wasn't in control of that happening. It was the best possible strategic move for John Kennedy running for president to pick Lyndon Johnson, carry the South. And for Lyndon Johnson, there were real, tangible, political benefits at that time to running for vice president. Most notably, and this is the thing that they tell that uh, angry Oklahoma senator, uh, look, it's going to be Kennedy Johnson. Johnson is still running for Senate in Texas. If Kennedy loses this election, it's going to be Johnson the next year in four years. And that's one of the key motivators to run. Might have it in the back of his mind that in eight years he can still run, you know. Lyndon Johnson, he dies when he's 63, and still not talking about an extremely old person. Uh, he's seen that way, I think, because of his appearance. Anybody looks old compared to Kennedy. So I think uh, thinking about 1968 is a viable reason as well. We don't have to assign all these weird and complicated conspiracy theories that just don't seem very likely, in my opinion. Hope you enjoyed this program. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Encouraging those who can to donate. Uh, suggest a donate of $25 at this point. You'll get the archive. I'll send you a URL where you can access all the past episodes, or most of them, to 2006. And if you do like the program, you can help a lot by telling someone about it. iTunes comments, reviews are helpful. Stitcher comments and reviews are helpful. Favorite us on Stitcher. Uh, tweet about us. My Twitter is at myhist, M-Y-H-I-S-T. Put a note on your blog. Any way you can publicize the program is great. And I do want to thank you for listening. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.